Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It was the best of time. It was the worst. She was the people's princess. To fight on the beaches. Oh, hey, man. These are the things that made England. To fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and evil woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! Hello everyone, and welcome to The Things That Made England. I'm Fiona Powell, and I'm joined today by David Crowther and Luke Baxter. The idea of The Things That Made England is to decide on what things make England as she is, the country that, despite it all, we feel lucky to be part of. Each episode, one of us will pitch an idea to be designated as one of the things that makes England distinctive, and we'll talk it over and possibly reach some sort of consensus. Nobody is supposing, by the way, that all or indeed any of these things are specific only to England. That would be a tall order, simply that they are an important aspect of why England is the way she is. After each episode, we'll post a poll on our Facebook page to allow you, the listeners, to vote and decide whether each idea is deemed worthy to be described as a thing that made England or not. Please do come and join us and join in the discussion on Facebook. We also have created a website so that non-Facebook people can comment there. You can find this by navigating to the things that made England, all one word, dot co dot uk. Finally, we have set up a Patreon page as a way of passing around a virtual hat. Should anyone feel inclined to support the show, you can find this at patreon.com forward slash TTME. Hello, David. Hello, Luke. And gentlemen, today I am proposing William Shakespeare 
as a thing that decidedly made England. Is that is that William Shakespeare who works down the the ship shop on the Fulham Road? The very one. He thinks he's Elvis. <laughs> Glad to see him here. Yeah, he thinks he's Elvis. So welcome, gentlemen. It's lovely to see you and speak to you. Hello, Fiona. How are you? Yes, it is. I think I'm going to start by giving you a little short uh, account of, of Shakespeare. Very short. Most people know, obviously know who he is, but it always amazes me that there are things that people don't know. So short account of William Shakespeare. William Shakespeare was baptised on April the 26th 1564, at the Holy Trinity Church in Stratford-upon-Avon in Warwickshire. Now, the exact date of his birth is not known. The standard at the time was to baptise children three days after their birth. So we traditionally celebrate Shakespeare's birthday as April the 23rd, which of course is St. George's Day. Which is one of the reasons why they say he is the thing that made England. Mm-hmm. He also conveniently died on April the twenty third, but actually we don't know if he was born on April the twenty third. It might have been the twenty first, probably not the twenty second, but could have been the twentieth, could have been a week before, but I doubt it. But the twenty seventh is right out. Annoyingly, because that's my birthday and it's the most is boring it? day in the history of everything. Loads of things happened on the 20, 26th of April and on the 28th of April, you know, sort of Guernica, things like that, the really good stuff. 27th of April, the only interesting person born was Morse, the inventor of the Morse code. Well, that's interesting. Well, yeah, but it's not... It's... Luke Baxter was born Thank on you, day. thank you. There you go, the great Luke Baxter. Yes, mm-hmm. and one of our listeners as well, I think. Excellent. Shakespeare was the son of John and Mary Shakespeare, Mary Arden and John Shakespeare, We know that Mary Arden was a Catholic and uh, we think that John Shakespeare may well have been a Catholic and therefore William may well have been a quiet Catholic. Some of his contemporaries, most famously Christopher Marlowe, Kit Marlowe, was born three months before William Shakespeare in February 1564 in Canterbury, the great playwright and poet. And if you listen to the history of England, there was a wonderful thing on Kit Marlowe. That's done. true. His other contemporaries was the, I'm sorry, I think he's dreadful, John Webster, who was born when Shakespeare was about 14 years old, most famous for the Duchess of Malfi, and Ben Jonson, who was born when Shakespeare was eight years old. So he was born in the reign of Elizabeth. Of course, we know that he was educated at the King's New School and absolutely typical standardised education for the time, studied a lot of classics, which I'm sure David will be able to talk about. Will I? Yeah, I hope so. In Latin, preferably. (laughs) What? (laughs) I don't know anything about classics. When I did Latin translation, I had rocks coming down from hills when it was supposed to be a field of corn. (laughs) (laughs) Romanus aunt domus. Well, I I something about Agricola laying waste the land. Uh, yes. Something about... <laughs> it's incomprehensible business, Latin. Thank you very much. I've used it often, not. Hmm. <laughs> anyway, at a young age, I, can't, I can never remember me dates. I'm a folklorist. I don't know me dates. So yeah, dates in... are rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> in 1582, at the age of 18... He got his girlfriend pregnant. 
Her name was Anne Hathaway. And oh. unfortunately, then you couldn't run off and, and fail to pay child support. And he didn't because he's a good bloke, is our will. She was quite a bit older than him. He married Anne Hathaway after getting her pregnant. And they had three children, Susanna, and then the twins, Hamnet and Judith. Shakespeare's only son, Hamnet, died at the age of 11, very sadly. Susanna went on to get married and have a child, but Shakespeare has no descendants. Is that Hamlet uh, or Hamnet? Hamnet. Hamnet, yeah. interestingly. Yeah. And then, 25, he composed his first full-length tragedy. And David will tell you everything else he did was tragic as well. Titus Andronicus, the age of uh, 25, the play, the dreadful Titus Andronicus. He went up to London and participated in, in a theatrical group and became an actor and writer. And then he there was a pause in his acting career due to an outbreak of plague. Doesn't that sound uh, suitable for the year? And then he joined the Lord Chamberlain's Men theatrical company, later called the King's Men, at the age of 30. And then at 35, the construction of the Globe Theatre. He retired at the age of 46 and then died at the age of 52. In his will, he left his wife, famously, his second best bed. He wrote at least 37 plays that scholars know of. Can I ask uh, a question at that point, Fiona? Do you mind? Yeah. yeah. Who yeah, did he, to whom did he leave his first <laughs> best bed? We don't know. Extraordinary. Seems like the obvious question, doesn't it? I think one of the most interesting things, because I am a lover, as you know, of folklore and of surnames. And Shakespeare is a Norman name used in Britain soon after 1066. And it comes from the old English shaken meaning to brandish, and spear, meaning spear. And it's a nickname, which is my favorite type of, of surname is the nickname, because it tells you something about one of your ancestors. So one of Shakespeare's ancestors was a confrontational and argumentative old sod. And so... <laughs> Oh, so it's sort of metaphorically shaking a spear rather than a great yeah. warrior or something. He doesn't walk in and smile at people. He just shakes, sits around shaking his spear. Excellent. So I think Shakespeare is a thing that made England because, oh, come on. <laughs> it's Shakespeare. We use his language. A, why does the bloke who lives on, who does work at the chip shop down the Fulham Road need to go into the cabinet? We've already done fish and chips. <laughs> <laughs> Because he has quietly and persistently over the centuries infiltrated our language, our thinking, our view of, of history has been influenced. Now, I come to Shakespeare from a very different angle, probably. Luke, how do you come to Shakespeare? Probably at school, yeah? Uh, definitely at school, yes. Wait, did you do a Shakespeare play every term? We did a Shakespeare play. I don't know. I don't. Uh, well, acting in it in the classroom. In the class. No, I see. I think that's part of the problem. Is that I think we uh, probably did sort of two for uh, O levels um, and two for A levels. I did English A level, and we did um, King Lear and Othello. I can't remember what we did. Oh, I know we did Hamlet at A level. What did we do? We oh, we did Macbeth at O level. 
Mm. At my school, we did a Shakespeare play every single term in the classroom, acting it out. That's How about great. you, David? I pretty much same as Luke, although Luke light. So I think I did King Lear and I then did Henry V. And that is uh, it, I think. Really? Now, I think now so. That... I hope so. I mean, I blank the rest of the pain from my from my mind, essentially. <laughs> well, I can remember I... one line of Shakespeare, actually. Uh, yeah. 50, of, 50 of my followers with the clap. That's nice. <laughs> it's not actually Shakespeare. Though. It's fi- the real Shakespeare is 50 of my followers at a clap. But, um, <laughs> you know, being school schoolboys, we changed it. Being mature. Shakespeare would have approved. He was bawdy. Well, you see, I, I came from Shakespeare from a different angle, I guess. I was brought up in a theatrical family. One of my earliest memories is sitting at the Marlowe Theatre in Canterbury, watching a rehearsal of Macbeth. I came to Shakespeare from that angle. And at the age of nine, my, my mother gave me the book by Charles and Mary Lamb, Lamb's Tales from Shakespeare. By the time I was 10, actually, by the time I was nine, I was passionately in love with Shakespeare. The stories, the plays, love them. I, I wasn't encountering Titus Andronicus and Coriolanus, you understand, but I was passionate about Shakespeare from from a very early age. In fact, teased about it at boarding school. <laughs> what a sophisticated <laughs> school you went to. That's not what we did at my school, I have to tell you. <laughs> we didn't mock each other about Shakespeare. Ooh, no, it sounds better than a privilege that would have been. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at boarding school I was a storyteller so when the nights went out and we were lying there in the dark pretending we really wanted to go to sleep and it was ridiculously early because it was only bloody 8 30 at night and I would inevitably apart from the folk tales I would tell them stories from Shakespeare fantastic and at one um, my kitty one... aunt Fiona what kind of school don't tell it I don't mean I don't think you need to tell us about this but I mean your school Fiona <laughs> tell us a story from Shakespeare Fiona Hello? Did they do that at your school, Luke? No. <laughs> no, no, no. We pre- we preferred citing uh, Wordsworth poems at night. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yes. And if you believe that... <laughs> anyway, sorry. Yeah, you're, women no, are, of course, much more sophisticated than blokes. I was, so, yeah. No, I was a bore even then. But they did enjoy it. One term I remember, I knew all of A Midsummer Night's Dream every single line and i i did it in a big chunk over a few weeks i i acted king theseus in in that play you've mentioned yes i was king theseus i can still remember a line from it uh this fellow doth not not know his lines so you know i've really picked up the high ground of shakespeare in my life (laughs) i acted at school of course i acted in all the shakespeare plays because of I don't know why, I always played either the old men, kings dying, or the drunks. I, don't know why. <laughs> I always wanted desperately to get a girly part, but I never got a girly part. I did all of the, any king dying, I was, or John of Gaunt dying, everybody dying, I was it. I think I there it. is a connection there between our school heads, because I think we wanted girly parts as well at school. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> you might have to edit that out. <laughs> keep it in, keep it in. Um, yes, because that was a, the problem of going to an all boys school. Was you know there was always the sort of uh, younger, pretty boys who had to be Juliet or whatever, um, which was slightly unfortunate. Never me. So Shakespeare, of course, he's a thing 
that made England. Uh, there should be no argument. David, there should be no argument. Well, I've got a few things to say about that. This is Jim. the nine-year-old Fiona you're arguing against here, David. Yes. Well, actually, funny enough, there is a bit of a parallel here because uh, my... I mean, I've never been mature enough to like Shakespeare, to be honest. Uh, but my daughter, who is far more mature than me, loved Shakespeare. I like you, Fiona, I think, right from right from the off. Um, I was a bit of a fan. And it's not that I don't appreciate, you know, I mean, obviously, in the end of this, we're going to concede that uh, Billy the Bard needs to go in something. <laughs> whether it's a cabinet or whether it's a lead coffin is open for debate. But... I my my experience of him, a bit like Chaucer, is sitting in a classroom reading the damn thing and wondering what it all meant. And the poetry meant nothing to me because I've never been particularly poetic. The failing may be in myself as much as Billy the Bard, but I have a, a number of specific objections to him. Shall I launch into these objections? Are you finished your, your launch, introduction? Yeah, launch away. Okay, false stuff. I mean, do I need to say any more? <laughs> No. <laughs> do I need and pistol? Do I need to say any more? I mean, you take the point, don't you? I you take the point. Boris Johnson's brother being Falstaff. You can imagine they that family do it particularly well when we we're prep school. Yeah, well, I've always wondered at your love of uh, the Johnsons. Mm, yes, yeah, very massive love. And <laughs> <laughs> um, so I understand from the History of European Theatre podcast, uh, Philip, that the origin of Falstaff actually comes from a Roman playwright called Paulus. don't know if you knew that, but apparently he's the first of that uh, essential figure that appears in so many plays across history of the, you know, bombastic buffoon, or so I'm told. Um, and I hated him. He wasn't funny. He was irritating. <laughs> he was mildly embarrassing. And the worst, his worst crime was that he just was not funny in any way, shape or form. The other second objection I have to uh, Shakespeare relates to that, which is that he's just not funny. I mean, his comedies are just not funny. They rely on that. I remember I had to do Tartuffe at, uh, at school as well. Is that Moliere, I think. Oh, and I hated that in the same way yeah. as I hated Shakespeare comedies, because a lot of the comedy is based on ridiculing and exposing somebody. Now, I know that there's lots of clever talk about what Malvolio being a Puritan and all that sort of thing. And this is Billy the Bard's way of fighting back against kind of oppressors of um, society, as it were, if you think of them that way. Um, but I hated it. Poor old Malvolio. I didn't want him to look like a Burke like that, however bad he was. <laughs> I just thought it was mean. It wasn't funny. It was mean. There was no wit in it. It was just brutal. And lots of really, really bizarre coincidences um, that we're supposed to believe. You you know, the tw was it twins who get sort of confused with each other, boy and girl twins, which seems fairly unlikely. Yeah, but you don't, you look at it from a very, you know, 21st century mm. perspective, don't you? I mean, if you're, if you're back in his you're back in his day, comedy did not mean sort of slapstick. Or, but it or, did. Or it I mean, that's the thing about Shakespeare. It did not mean the same. But I find him very witty. In what I, way? I him... Say, tell me one witty thing that Billy the Bard said. 
Just one. The funniest thing in Shakespeare is unintentional. Exit stage no, left, no, pursued by a bear. bear. <laughs> That's his best gag in Lord knows how many words is the thing he didn't think was a gag. Oh, no. Uh, let us speak of country matters. I think that's very funny. Let us speak of what? Country matters. And it is rude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> country matters. Yes. Uh, what, what's the euphemism there? Explain it fully. And well, are, we, are we back to, to girly parts? We're back to girly parts, I'm afraid. Yeah. Um, okay. And, uh, yeah, no, and, you know, it's quite, and, you know, obviously playing on the word country, country. It's not exactly obvious, is it? I mean, I was always told by many people that the fact that I had to explain all my jokes meant they weren't funny. Ah. So let's make the same standard with Shakespeare, shall we? All right, but you don't find the whole thing in A Midsummer Night's Dream with Titania falling in love with an ass. You don't find that amusing. (laughs) No, absolutely not funny. I'm sorry. Somebody for it. The funniest thing in our production of... A Midsummer Night Scream, as we called it, was the fact that we lost Thisbe halfway through the production and my dad had to shout out, get on with the next bit from the audience. You lost Thisbe to what? We lost Thisbe. We couldn't find the actor, Thisbe. Right. Because right, right, he'd, he'd gone round the corner. Oh, okay, yeah. So we lost, lost him. him to and dysentery that... or something. <laughs> we did eventually find him. Right. But, um, you know, there was a noticeable gap of about 10 minutes. I mean, what's funny about falling in love with an ass? Oh come on! You don't. It's find not the a great gag. gag. Oh, it's not a gag, but that whole setup and and the seriousness of bottom and the rude mechanicals and the and the and the chink in the wall. Like at your school, were you allowed to do the V sign for the chink in the wall? My headmistress told us it was absolutely necessary, and I the remember v a sign. Yeah, that the. the F off sign. When they walk through the chink in the wall, we were told at my school, you have to put up the the V sign, you know. I think we were a bit nicer in Loughborough than wherever you went to school, Fiona. You know, we were more genteel. Genteel (laughs) is the word. More genteel than Folkestone. They're more genteel in Loughborough than they are in Folkestone. (laughs) (laughs) I I fear not. Nobody's ever called Loughborough genteel, actually. (laughs) Not the adjective that jumps to mind. (laughs) But I clearly remember we had to put up, you know, the Agincourt salute. I'm doing it to you now, chaps. Excellent. For teenage girls or young girls, you know, it was just bloody funny. And the headmistress said, do it just as if you're doing the gesture at somebody and it'll make it even funnier. You don't find any of that amusing. Well, I must admit, as a 12-year-old, that that would be kind of breaking convention and therefore giggle-worthy, the, the doing of the V. But I think once by, by the time you've got past the age of 15, probably isn't funny anymore. Well, I don't know. I find I find Shakespeare... I just, I just like him. I love... I mean, uh-huh. Hamlet is my favourite play. I find it... Okay, we're on to the tragedies now, aren't we? Um, yeah. And I must admit, the tragedies are a different kettle of fish. And I, I found some way back into Shakespeare through the tragedies, Macbeth in particular. I mean, I have to, got to say, Hamlet's a bit of a whiner, isn't he? I mean, for crying <laughs> out, I just smack, smack, pull yourself together. You know, don't you think? But Macbeth, I must admit, is I've thoroughly enjoyed several times. Julius Caesar, though, is an abomination in the sight of any kind of theatre cricket. I took my daughter to see Julius Caesar on a camping trip. We went into Stratford. And God, at the end of it, there were people killing themselves all over the place. And he felt like saying, as my dad did, get on with the next bit. 
That's all right, though. <laughs> I mean, they did kill themselves. But they're yeah. all over the place. Oh, God, he's going to kill himself as well as him. Oh, God, come on, then. Can I have a <laughs> cup of tea while he's doing it? <laughs> I mean, you know, we get the point. When my grandson, Jacob, was 10 years old, I took him to see a production of Romeo and Juliet. He was a pissy lad. On the way home, he said, so basically, Nana, it's a story of teenagers misbehaving and nobody tells them to stop. Ah, very good. When you say pissy lad? Pissy. Pissy. Sorry, I clearly forgot to put my teeth in. I haven't put I haven't put my ear my earphone in. Um, yes, we're going to get sort of done by Apple for for rude language on our yes. Shakespeare podcast. I have to, Good. We'll have to put an an e on it. Yeah. All because of Shakespeare. All because of Shakespeare. And, Shakespeare. and speaking of Shakespeare and his language, Luke, I know that you know a great deal about <laughs> a great deal about a great deal. Also, you claim, but <laughs> I'm sorry. I, no, you do. <laughs> oh, I have to say, I had to come off mute. <laughs> I respond to that scurrilous I'm, statement. Also, you claim. Yeah. yeah. That was a low blow for a low Saturday blow, morning. Low blow. But it landed Saturday. pretty well. Yeah. Landed pretty well. In the solar plexus. <laughs> well, no, because that's what I was going to say that, that, you know, there's obviously masses that can be said about the language of Shakespeare, but I am completely unqualified to comment on most of it. Uh, you know, the poetry of Shakespeare and the way he constructs the verses of his plays is undoubtedly amazing, but really not something that I know an awful lot about. Um, but this is the things that made England. And I think we can look at the way Shakespeare made England by helping to make the English language. Language is generally an evolutionary thing, and you can't really pinpoint individuals who have truly had a significant effect on a language. You know, thinking about English, maybe you could name a few like uh, Dr. Johnson or James Murray, the Oxford English Dictionary chap, William the Conqueror, Caxton, King James, Chaucer. Okay, there are quite a few, but arguably none have had uh, the effect that our own Billy S. has had. So some numbers, if I may. Um, Hopefully these will be a little more reliable than some of the economic stats that I rolled out for the Empire episode that were roundly shot down, quite rightly, if I may say. Um, So Shakespeare had a vocabulary of at least 21,000 different words, which compared to, you know, sort of the contemporary King James Bible had 10,000 words. And an educated person of today would only have about 10,000 words as well. What about Winston Churchill? How many did he have? Um, how many words did Winston Churchill have? I oh, I thought know. that was a very famous, famous thing. I'll, I'll, I'll look at the internet while you keep. Yeah, talking. you Google it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, chip in. Um, but yeah, but you know, but there are a lot more words today uh, than there were in Shakespeare's time, obviously. And you know, two thousand words uh, were first recorded in his works, um, and you know, this includes words like obscene or accommodation or even horrid. And what is very special is how he invented expressions and put words together like smooth-faced or ill-tuned. Some of his his words didn't survive, including his longest word, um, which is honorificabilitudibus. That's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. It does sound like it, doesn't it, completely? (laughs) Pure poetry. Pure poetry, especially when I completely mangled it. (laughs) Can you say it again? I'd love to hear it again. It's quite Honor- difficult not to mangle, to be fair. It's very difficult. Honorificabilitudinatibus. What does it mean? It means with honour. Oh. It's quite nice. 
look at that up and try it next time somebody is yes. giving me. <laughs> Just make sure you haven't had a couple of drinks first, darling. And, you know, to be or not to be, is you know, is that the most bastardized quote ever? Quite possibly, I think. Um, and language is an important part of national identity and Shakespeare is key to the making of English. So ipso facto, as he might have said, he made England. Unarguable. That was a better argument than mine, David. I don't know what to say. You, well, you I have to say... Been, you should have been leading this, Luke. <laughs> There's more. Well, I have to say, it is at this point that I am going to concede the point, you know. So I've had a go at the, the comedy and so on and so forth. But um, in the language, I mean, I use the language all the time without knowing it. You know, I'm always talking about, I don't know, in my mind's eye or shuffling off this mortal coil or, you know, what it might do. And I can't argue with that because it's it's a fact and it's there. His language has, I mean, I suppose the question is, I put it to you, Fiona and Luke, that the reason why his language is so much part of English is the same reason that I took again the lad, which is that it is shoved down everybody's throat ah. from, you know, as soon as you get born, you know, and your your child is trying to say trust fund as its first word, <laughs> you start quoting Shakespeare at their thing. You know, that's a, it's an old Bob Newman joke, by the way. Bob Newman, very funny man. Um and just and we've done it to the rest of the world as well, you know, along with colonization, we said, right, we're gonna colonize you and we expect you to learn the complete words of Shakespeare. You know, we've shoved it down the collective throat of the world. Yes, because I mean even, even the French would concede that he is above all of their greats like Moliere, who I No. Yeah, I, is that right? Yeah. Have yeah. you found an actual French person who says that the English do something better than the French? Um, I don't believe that. I'll track one down for you. <laughs> you're gonna find that tough yeah going on from what david was saying that you know one of the facts that explains the reach of shakespeare and the english language more generally is that his poems and plays were being written just as english england and the english language uh was reaching the shores of the new world um i think you know one of the things about the language is how much it has evolved since his time you know for example um it has you know lost formal pronouns like thee and thou which are the sort of typical when you're trying to do cod shakespeare that you get so much in shakespeare but you know these are still kept in other languages like vous in french or stead in spanish bill bailey's quite interesting about the grammatical constructions you know shakespeare wouldn't have had access to things like the continuous aspect tenses so he wouldn't have said i am speaking or i will be going and also the pronunciation would be different as he was writing about the time of the great vowel shift um, I've never really managed to get my head around the great vowel shift, but basically vowels started to be pronounced differently. So my would have sounded more like knee or stone like stan. Um, and this would have been quite a long process that happened between about 1400 and 1700. And so it was you going on. Sorry. You need to listen to Kevin Stroud's History of English. He did quite a few episodes on the great vowel shift. If you want to know more about the Great Vowel Shift, as luck would have it, Kevin Stroud <laughs> is covering it right now in his excellent History of English podcast. <laughs> there you go, a little, little, a little, little shout out for Kev. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. one of my favourite plays is The Tempest, and what you know what it says about colonialism and so on. Um, and Shakespeare does some really quite clever stuff with language there. You know, for example, there's Caliban, which is an anagram of cannibal, and Prospero tells 
Caliban how lucky he is that he taught him language when before he would babble like a thing most brutish. Uh, but Caliban re- responds, and I think it's a great response, is you taught me language and my profit on it is I learnt how to curse. The red plague rid you for learning me your language. Powerful stuff. And, you know, and it's quite clever the way that, you know, characters like Trinkolo and Stefano, who don't speak in rhyming verse, they speak in prose, which compares to all the posh people in the play speaking in rhyming couplets or whatever they are. Shakespeare does the same in, in Henry IV, part one, when the action is taking place amongst the lowborn in the in the taverns of East Cheap. But in good TTME tradition, I need to do a bit of trashing of the main proposed thing. What do you mean Shakespeare is a thing that made England rubbish? <laughs> But uh, Shakespeare is, for many people, and I think this is what David is saying, is spoilt precisely because of his language. You know, it is very difficult. And the the language is difficult for a modern audience, and that can be really massively off-putting. I don't know if you know, but there's a a, a film on on Netflix called The King, which is basically Henry V simplified um, and sort of modernised the same story, just with modern language. But, you know, Kermode, the critic, says that even a contemporary audience wouldn't have understood every sentence of a play like Coriolanus. And, you know, English has changed a lot since his day, you know, more than, for example, Spanish. Cervantes, you know, who's the exact contemporary who died on this self-same day, is a lot easier to understand than Shakespeare is for a modern Spanish person. I do really like that coincidence, that they died on the same day. Yes, But I went to check it, and as always, when you go and check something, you ruin the bloody... Isn't it fascinating how great people often, you know, die on the same day? Isn't it? Is it um, C.S. Lewis died on the same day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated? Oh, really? This show is the things that made England. And when you think about the things that made England, you instantly turn your head to the great speech in Richard II, this royal throne of kings, this sceptered isle. Do you not? You do. Instantly you think of England and you think of that magnificent speech. I mean, he showed us, he gave us the identifiers, didn't he? The Agincourt speech. Although it's, yeah. got to, it's got to be said, his geography was a bit rubbish in that speech, wasn't it? Well, his England, geography was completely rubbish. England obviously isn't an island, so... I yeah. wasn't thinking of that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I mean, it, I know it's picky because, it, I mean, it is a, you know, a jolly stirring speech. But if he'd been making it, I'd have, you know hopped up from the court and said, excuse me, just before you go on, England isn't an island. No, do carry on. Yeah. You know, which would have ruined it. <laughs> Very much Which so. would have ruined it. But he was born into the age where, and I am, before I say this, uh, that I'm completely against this notion that the whole of Britain was England. You know, this idea that Wales is part of us and Scotland is part of us and we're all... Oh, you know, he, was, he was pre those days. Just barely, though. Oh, yeah, but... You know, just barely is enough to be before something. The, the English didn't <laughs> well, think Scotland were part was part of England. And well, in fact, no, when he, I, there was a young man when James when James the first of England, sixth of Scotland. But even Jimmy was a claimed to be a king of Britain, but he was it was a dual monarchy. Scotland was not part of England. Well, all right, but Wales bloody well was. Wales was the United Kingdom of England and Wales. Yes, indeed. Yeah, well, it was considered part of England as far as the English were concerned. Uh, well, it was in terms in political terms, yes, yes. Careful, which David. We're, we're still complaining about. <laughs> yes, and for good reason. I was trying to support you guys here with this whole English <laughs> thing. 
<laughs> I'm Scottish. This, this happy breed of men, this little world, hmm. this precious stone set in a silver sea, it's quintessentially, isn't it? What we it think is good. of. It's, there is uh, no doubt he he did a good job in that, and Henry V, of course, is a bit of a classic as well in terms of uh, identifiers. You're you're quite right. And the history is, you know, I think that's one of the most crucial things is whether we believe it or not. And it's part of the, you know, perhaps we could have a debate about that. But a lot of our understanding of history was established by Shakespeare. Did he invent the idea of the roses? Was that him? I think he may have called it. I mean, there's a poet on whom he drew for the the, uh, Wars of the Roses, a guy called Samuel Daniel, who I know nothing of, apparently wrote a lot about the Wars of the Roses and on who he drew. But obviously, his main sources were were Froissart, Edward Hall, and famously Hollinshed, of course. So, you know, he's part of a tradition. He's not making it up. But, of course, history doesn't belong to academics. In fact, the least listened to part of history is academics you know they get to scotland for example popular history and academic history almost two completely different things you wonder if you're in the same place and shakespeare is a very very fine example of that i think that his history you know was very resonant he communicated it incredibly well i would concede the point that he is one of those people who made england because he wrote history for ordinary people in a way that um you know was kind of Almost irreversible. Almost like he was a history podcaster, for example. Yes, indeed. He's he's your (laughs) forerunner. I think think my reach is slightly less than Bill. Could be wrong. Give it a while. Give it time. (laughs) That longer. We can have the first phone of of Crowther. Let's have our brains frozen and we'll come back in a thousand years' time and see. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm working on that already, actually, I think. Yes. <laughs> but David, didn't he get a lot of the history horribly wrong? Well, I mean, it's interesting. I read a book about this very thing, although I skim-read it, which was uh, John Julius Norwich, who's uh, a very good author and very readable. And he, he did Shakespeare's King, so it was a bit difficult to pick it out. But in general, I think his take possibly with the exception of Macbeth, is that the history, given his sources, was not bad. What he does, obviously it's not entirely accurate, but then he's a playwright, not a, an, an academic historian. So when he changes the history, he does it for the purposes of drama, which you've got to say is you know, what you'd expect. So, for example, in Henry IV, Part One, Hotspur, who's really a, you're not the world's most relevant bloke, was made into a, a hero. John Oldcastle was re, kind of refashioned as false stuff. Yeah. Henry V was a, a metronome. He was not entirely dissolute when he was, was young. So... Metronome? The framework... Metronome? Uh... Metronome, not metronome. Anyway, um, he was a machine. Ah, not a little person. Um, little person on the French underground. Not a little person on the French underground. <laughs> although maybe you never know. <laughs> and if it did, that you'd 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 get many points for writing an alternative history of Henry V. 
in fact, as a very small person on the French underground. In his view of Richard III, which I know was absolute bog standard at the time, right, is now, yes. is the view we have of, and have had of Richard III until very recently. Well, the, because his view of Richard III, although dramatically bigged up and all the rest of it, isn't far wrong. I mean, he makes it into more of a a villain who thinks things through. And I think now we would say that Richard very probably was a villain, but he kind kind of gets forced into it by various actions and consequences of those actions. And he probably didn't start off thinking, "Am I going to murder my nephew?" Uh, nonetheless, despite all the verbiage there is around, he almost certainly did. We so voted, we voted on it for the history of England, so we know. We didn't quite vote on that, didn't it? Didn't we vote on whether he was a, a fool Nave. or a knave? Yes. No, it was a fool or a knave or something else, wasn't it? Or a saviour. And I think we ended up with fool rather right. than knave. Right. Whereas for Shakespeare, of course, he's a knave. Yeah. And the crippled... So, thing, I mean, what... A, he, over, he over-egged that he was a cripple. Yes, he over-egged it, he bigged it up and he dramatised it mm. to make a, a better play, which is the point I'm kind of making that as far as history is concerned, yes, he's not entirely accurate, he's not a professional historian, he's not trying to be. It's like reading Bernard Cornwell. Mm. Well, he's a storyteller, is what yeah. he is. As a professional storyteller, I'm always having people saying, ain't not, we not, didn't quite happen that way, and I'll say, I'm a storyteller. I'm yes. not an historian. I'm not going to give you the exact account. I'm I'm a storyteller. Your right. fish is not going to be six inches long. It's going to be a foot long because I'm mm. a storyteller. Yes, absolutely right. I mean, I think that's exactly what he does. We know that he performed in front of and for Elizabeth I, and he also performed for James I. And we think he may have been a Catholic. Certainly his mother was. His father may have been. Don't you think that he was, you know, he was very aware of being in a precarious position mm. and, and therefore being careful politically? I don't know. You you might know that. I would not. Yeah, but there, there, there was a censor who would who would stop them putting their plays on if they didn't approve of them. Right. So, I mean, yeah, he, you know, he couldn't sort of you know, start saying Richard III was fantastic. Oh, dear. You know, these two upstarts. Yeah. Absolutely. He had to. I love his folklore, the, the way he refers back to Chaucer, the way he refers back to, um, I think it's Midsummer Night's Dream, where he takes one of the knight's tale from Chaucer and expands on that. Hamlet, you see, again, Hamlet was taken from a, a Finnish folk tale originally. One of the reasons I love Hamlet is because I think it's a very complex play, although it is ultimately, a, it is about a teenage boy. It a is whiner. about a teenage Oh, yeah. But a, but a recognizable, you know, that's one of the reasons I love it. But uh, he did take from a from an old Finnish folk tale. And King Lear, of course, he took from an old British story, an old British story about Lear, but also that basic story of three daughters, yeah. two of whom say, I love you madly. And one who says, well, you know, I love you, but you're my dad. Basically. I love you like salt loves meat, or then there's some. That's right. It's a Russian folk tale. Yeah, and it's a folk tale I tell, where the youngest daughter says, "I love you like salt," and the father kicks her out, and then she 
down the road shows her father the importance of salt. <laughs> yes, because she she serves up a sort of wedding feast with no salt in it, doesn't she? And yes. and the tablecloths have no salt in the dye, and therefore they run. Uh, and there's ice on the path coming in, and they do not salt the path. And was this folklore yeah. working for the salt marketing board at the time? <laughs> <laughs> You'd be amazed how much how many folklorists work for the salt marketing board in yes. the past. There are. Eminence grease of modern politics. <laughs> <laughs> Taking, for example, a Midsummer Night's Dream is various folk tales all jammed together. Actually, I mocked that when I was a teenager, the whole Titanian and Oberon thing, and then felt bad about it as I developed my folklore and realised how actually very clever it was. And of course, Puck, who is a Cornish Pisky. There is no doubt about it in my mind. Puck is a Pisky. Pisky, is that like a pixie sort of thing? Is that the same yeah, origin? Yeah. Right. Yes, it's the Cornish. They give like for like. They give good for good and uh, bad for bad. And that definitely is Puck. His references and, and the way he he adapts these stories are, are for me, they're wonderful. Yeah. And, the, and what do you think of his, his the comedy plays then, Fiona, in response? Well, I've, I've always enjoyed them. I, I've always found the little jokes... I'm sorry, David. I've <laughs> always point. found the little jokes in Hamlet, even. And always, maybe it's the way I think, but I've always been able to glean the little characters that he has and how funny they are. In every single tragedy, there's a light bit. There's a ridiculous person. There is a ridiculous moment. Yes, and I Polonius, love... Polonius, I suppose, isn't he? Is it Polonius? Ophelia's father. Ophelia's father, Polonius. Yeah, who gets stabbed. Yeah, He's yeah. a bit of a sort of buffoon, isn't he? I suppose to speak for Shakespeare, just for a moment, since I'm supposed to be the grit in the oyster here, I think it is true to say that every generation reinvents Shakespeare and it says something for the lad that every generation can reinvent Shakespeare. Yes, it is difficult, though, because, you know, my son's doing... Uh, Romeo and Juliet at the moment so obviously he absolutely hates it because you know and I think that's part of the problem of the way that it's taught where you know they yeah. they over analyze line by line and spend a year on one play at the age of 15 so by the end of it they you know they they know one play really well hate that one play and don't know the rest of it it's a real shame I think I think what I but what I mean is that so if you look at the two Henry the fist because I did it for history and Technicolor, we yeah. look at it. If you look at Dear Dear Larry's Henry V, you know, during mm-hmm. the war, it it has a particular tone, same language. Kenneth Brunard yeah. does his, um, Dear Dear Ken, uh, does his version, uh, and it's got a very different vibe to it. It's, there's quite more pathos in it. There's more awareness that war is not a good thing as it were so and the latest it's tom flexible Hiddleston. enough for people to regenerate it to there, there's a tom hiddleston one that we that was part of the hollow crown uh which is fantastic yes that that's really dour you know it's very not sort of beating the shields and getting yes. excited about it it's all very quite slowly i mean that's true i saw the, uh, ben wishaw as richard the mm. second um in the hollow crown series which again, I have to say, I I did enjoy very much because he brought again he brought the pathos of Richard II, who was a thoroughly rubbish king yeah. uh, and an arrogant <laughs> little twerp. And nonetheless, Shakespeare commu- and Ben Wishaw communicated the pathos of his situation incredibly well. And so I'm, 
you know, I am beginning to grow up emotionally and I'm expecting puberty anytime soon. Um, and, you know, as puberty approaches, I am beginning to see some benefit in Billy. Problem with Ben Whishaw is he's Paddington. He well, he is now. He wasn't when he did the Hollow Crown. No, but I must right. admit, now it's probably ruined it. Yeah. Well, you don't see him, of course. No, mm. it's his voice. He's so lovely. Physically, he's a very good Richard II. Yeah, really it's a really, I really yeah. enjoyed that one. Actually. So have we brought you round? Well, I have been brought round. I think it's an awful shame that it was taught in the way it was taught. Mm. I think I suspect that you're correct, Fiona, in saying that really you need to act it uh, to make it live and breathe and that the language does get in the way. And again, you know, I, I've not yet reached puberty. So um, there are, I've my weight route back into it, partly, as in so many things, has been the enthusiasm of my daughter. So enthusiasm, I think, does that. Um, and therefore, I've, I kind of liked the tragedies first, except for Julius Caesar, which sucks, and then <laughs> moved on to the histories. Maybe one day um, I'll listen to his comedies without uh, needing to, to, to vomit. But, you know, I think that's quite a long way. <laughs> I, did a, I saw a Julius Caesar where they acted as a sort of African dictator, and that, that really made sense. That was, mm. uh, that was absolutely amazing. It was fantastic. I'm sorry, it needs an editor's pen. Right. That's, that's, what, that's what Julius Caesar needs. As does Hamlet. Yeah, stop going on, you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. no. Uh, Hamlet can stay as it, as it is. Hamlet is wonderful. Editors Just are great. <laughs> Don't touch Hamlet. It, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> and I love Midsummer Night's Dream. Just love it. Sorry, love the rude mechanicals. They make me laugh every time. What is a rude mechanical? I have no idea. What is a rude mechanical, Luke? You're uh, the language man. I don't know what a rude mechanical is. It's, uh, it's just a working class bloke, you know. Oh, I see. Right. right. They're, they're workers. They're, they're not uh, theatre people. That's what makes them delightful. They're just working class blokes and there's honestly nothing better to be. In reference to their skilled manual labours. Yeah, because they were weavers and, and builders Rude in the biblical rude and bear. Absolutely. Uh, rude uh, in, format, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Rudo. Keeping rude health. Yes, it is a fine phrase. Rude. So we're gonna put the put the old bugger in the uh cabinet then. He has to go. I mean he's already there. He's been there all along. Without you even he's knowing been, it then. Well, yeah, he's been sitting on top of the cabinet watching everybody else go in and saying, Oh, I don't like her much, but uh, okay. Well, he presumably enjoyed, he appreciated the chip butty when that went in. Actually, we haven't oh, well, done the chip butty yet, have we? No. Yeah. Must he, be uh, he definitely has HP sauce on his bacon butties. Okay. Well, he's a Midlander, so. <laughs> yes, exactly. that's all right. Yeah. I, I would think just by being a Midlander, he'd be in instantly. Well, yeah, he's from Warwickshire. I mean, Warwickshire is the posh part of the Midlands, to be honest. <laughs> And Royfield, yeah. you know, Royfield just uh, from up the road from him, and you know, still even that, yeah. no fellow feeling. Now, how do how do you both feel about the the conspiracy that used to was hot as heck when I was a young woman that that says that Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare, which I think is a load of old 
posh gits rubbish. Sorry. The upstart crow thing. Yes, I mean, absolute nonsense. You know, it's just, in fact, you know, it's partly his language is so rich because he's drawing on from, you know, language of the educated and of the masses. That's what, you know, he has so many words. I think, yeah, absolute rubbish. Well, look, that was, that's really well put. I mean, I'm, I'm super impressed. Thanks. You summed it up in one sentence. I think well, I, I pulled it from somewhere. And I'm assuming you're the same way, David. Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare. A chap called David McLean did an episode for me on the very topic, and he concluded that he wrote the stuff. Excellent. And and the, the, the woman who came up with the theory was completely barking mad, invented it completely, and you know tried to. And nobody ever thought that there was any doubt about it for centuries. Um, and then so one person just got a bee in their bonnet and started bringing it all up. Well, that is the way a- academia works, isn't it? You know, you've got to say something. But she wasn't even an academic. She was just a nutter. Steve Cloutier, who uh, is a, an, a good online mate and knows his literature and so on, and did uh, an episode on Blind Harry for me, and it's supposed to be doing an episode for me of Spencer. It says that Shakespeare is England's greatest cultural bequest to the world he didn't quite say bequest but i can't remember exactly what he said so according to steve he's our greatest world heritage even more than derby county is there anything else to say or should we go to the roundup we are going to leave it to our listeners to vote we will put up a poll right soon asking our listeners to comment and perhaps to add their thoughts on Shakespeare, perhaps why they love or dislike Shakespeare. Is Shakespeare a thing that made England? Now it's just time for us to leave things in Luke's hands for the roundup before we let him ramble on. (laughs) Sorry, Luke. It has been delightful chatting with you lads. Say your goodbyes now. (laughs) Very good. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Fiona. All right. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I am not quite sure what I'm supposed to be rounding up here. Our regular format has been somewhat discarded as we bring you fun new formats such as the three-episode Bunathon or the surprise Scar Prize. Buns did eventually get a vote, but I feel it had something of a soggy bottom. Make what you will of the following results. 39 votes for Buns, yes please. 22 for I would like to participate, but I haven't ever eaten buns. Do scones or cinnamon rolls count? I'm afraid I am none the wiser on that score, Melissa. 17 for crumpets are a gift from the angels. 5 for biscuits and gravy. 4 for toasted tea cakes with tea, obs. 3 for crumpets can burn in the deepest pit. Seems a bit harsh. Two for I love lardy cake best. And then one each for Devonshire splits. Cornish saffron buns equal divine. That was my attempt at Fiona's voice. That was her option. I prefer tarts. You might want to keep that one to yourself, Rob. Nothing beats an iced Chelsea bun. Buns had left a sticky residue and we had a few more posts on the subject. Megan got a Mother's Day baking thread going, while Audrey plucked up the courage to serve Fiona sticky pecan buns in real life, IRL, and made a good point by asking whether it's because we, English, have our buns with tea that we prefer them less sweet. On the food front, 
Jeff went full TTME and bought himself a bottle of HP sauce. There was some confusion about whether it was past its sell-by date due to that old day-month-month-day thing that Americans are also wrong about. And Jeff asked for recommendations for his first HP-infused meal. And we had all sorts of suggestions, including eggs from Royfield. And then it all went quiet. What had happened to Jeff? Had he in fact got the month-day-day-month thing wrong and died a horrible death from past-it HP sauce? No. He is fine and tells us that he enjoys it with something called fries. Oh, chips. And it can save an overdone steak, apparently. I have quite a backlog of Facebook posts to go through. I'll just have a quick flick back through and bring you some highlights. And the highlight of all was without doubt from Becky, announcing that TTME is her favourite podcast of all. Thank you, Becky. Bacon seems to have had a starring role. Ben commenced the great bacon debate by sharing some dodgy-looking store-bought stuff. I think we actually, and surprisingly, reached a consensus agreeing that British-style bacon is far superior than excessively crispy American stuff. Personally, I believe all bacon is good bacon. David recently posted his walking butty, which he was trying with marmalade. Apparently, it is a thing but not a thing that I would risk a perfectly good butty on. Just imagine if it was just as disgusting as it sounds. One would need a backup butty to console oneself. Sorry, I don't know why I've gone all cod PG Woodhouse. Anyway, on with the show. Robin gave us a couple of posts of rude and weird British place names. I think we might have lost our not explicit rating just by quoting Shakespeare on this episode, so I have nothing to lose by telling you about places like the cul-de-sac, hard-on road, or a place simply known as the knob. These are a perennial favourite that never fails to amuse, well, amuse a juvenile such as myself. Stephanie is always great at sharing pics. There's a mad one of a space-age McDonald's restaurants. Do we call them restaurants? There's also a very funny link from Rhea of Americans mocking British pronunciation. How very dare they! And another funny one from Leonard comparing various expressions. Do please come over to our Facebook page if you're down with this kind of thing. And if you're not on Facebook, well, to be honest, you get the best of it here. Well, maybe. Except for Robert's question about cricket. Robert wanted to get his head round cricket. He asked us, very politely, whether we had any recommendations for a book or any other source to help him. I've had a scroll back through this thread and people, to be honest, I don't think we've helped Robert very much. Eric was somehow explaining baseball on the cricket post in quite some detail for such a simple sport. We gave Robert cricket in sci-fi novels, cricket in comedy podcasts, cricket on tea towels, the importance of the quality of the teas in cricket. But I'm not really sure we actually gave him much help to get his head round cricket as he had requested. Well, Robert, how about we use the current series between England and New Zealand as an example? In the first test last week, the Kiwis scored 378 runs in their first innings, and England got 275. Luke, thank you. That'll be quite enough of that. Thank you very much, Luke, for that enlightening roundup. The Things That Made England has a Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash TTME. We have three tiers, 
the executive producer, the official patron, and the hat going round, so that anyone keen to support can choose a tier that fits most wallets. More than anything, you'll be receiving our undying gratitude and a mention on the show. But we'll also be posting a few random bits and bobs. For example, available soon, just now you heard me unfairly cutting Luke's fascinating ramble about cricket. His entire ramble will be made available to our beloved patrons, as well as a bit that I recorded with me reciting some of my favourite Shakespeare pieces. Finally, it just leaves me time to thank all of our patrons. Our executive producers, Marilyn, Eric, Michelle, Kurt and Rowena, and to thank Guy, Catherine, Foe, Rob and Joseph. You are the best of the best. Until we meet again, on behalf of the team, Royfield Brown, David Crowther, Luke Baxter and myself, Fiona Powell. Thank you very much for listening. For those of you who are still tuned in, here's a little treat for you. Honorificabilitudinatibus. <laughs> the brilliant Luke Baxter. Thanks for listening. It was the best of times. It was the worst. She was the people's princess. We shall fight on the beaches. Away, man. These are the things that made England. We shall fight on the landing ground. These are the things that made I England. I have a body, but of a weak and feeble woman. These are the things that made England. And a king of England, too. These are the things that made England. Cry God for Harry! And these are the things that made England. England! And St. George! These are the things that made England. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.